Well, good morning, Summit Church at all of our campus locations in the Triangle. I know that at some of our campuses this morning, you are probably looking around, feeling like everything got a little bit more cramped between last week and this week, and you are wondering, wow, did the campus pastors do such a good job preaching last weekend that they managed to increase our attendance by 30% in one weekend? Maybe that is the explanation, but another explanation is that this is the first weekend that all of our college students are back. So Summit Church at all of our campuses, would you put your hands together and welcome back this very important population of our church. We love you all, we miss you when you are gone, and we are not the same church without you. Well, I I feel like this is the kind of thing next that I shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't have to be said, but uh, I wasn't here last weekend, and in light of what's going on, not only in our city, but really around the world, I feel like I I need to say this, and I want to say this, and uh, you could consider this the official position statement um, by the Summit Church and the pastors and leaders of the Summit Church. And that is that we stand without reservation against any and all kinds of expressions of white supremacy or any kind of racial superiority. Um, In fact, I would tell you, I would go so far as to say that anybody that supports that position in any way has, has to have no understanding of the gospel and that the name of Jesus should certainly never be attached to that kind of demonic wickedness. Um, our message, our core message that we believe is that we are all equally made in the image of God, that we have one common problem, sin, and one hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have heard it said that, that heaven would be a white supremacist hell. Because there you're going to find people of every tribe and tongue and nation gathered together worshiping around the throne of a Jew. Racism is a blasphemous offense against God, and it has led in this country to the worst kinds of wickedness, and so we unqualifiedly stand against it. And to our brothers and sisters of color, we want you to know that we love you, that we stand with you, and we are one with you in Christ Jesus. If you agree with that, Summit Church, would you put your hands together? Summit Church, the greatest thing that we can do for our community is to not only model this type of love, but we need to pray for our community. And so let's do that right now on all of our campuses. Would you bow your heads with me and let's just let me voice a prayer on your behalf to God. Father, it is situations like these that remind us, remind me of my brokenness, our brokenness, and how badly we need the grace and the peace and the healing of Jesus to work in and through us. And so we pray, God, that you might create in this church a reflection of the kingdom that you promised you would bring on earth and a kingdom that you died to create. Lord, we pray that you might use us as instruments of peace in this, that you, we, we, the Summit Church, would be a people that are filled with grace and peace and a zeal for righteousness and for justice and for the cause of the oppressed. Um, God, we give you thanks for um, this because we learned this from how Jesus treated us and who he is to us. And so we give you thanks. We ask for your help. We pray in his power and his name and all God's people at all the campuses of the Summit Church said, 
Amen. Amen. Well, I do have a message for you this weekend, I promise, but I wanted to remind everybody before we get into the message that next weekend we are going to be voting on a recommendation that the elders of this church have brought forward, and that is to approve the financing for the building of our new broadcast campus. I am very excited to be taking this step because it is going to expand our ability to reach more people with the gospel, which by God's grace has always been the focus and the driving motif of every decision that this church has made. In just the last couple of weeks in Apex, we have seen what an expanded facility can do. That campus had been meeting at Cary High School for the last several years, and over the last year and a half or two years, it had plateaued at about 1,100 people a week. In this new facility, in the last two weeks, they have doubled that attendance, literally doubled. I don't mean metaphorically doubled, but actually doubled. Now, now you say, well, what changed down there with the Cary Apex campus? Did the people in Apex suddenly get more spiritual? Did they finally remove the sin in their lives that had been keeping God from blessing them? Maybe, I don't know, I don't want to say no, but, 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 but the real reason is that we made space for people down there. And that's what this financing measure will allow us to do. Now, I know, I know this is a big step for us as a church, and we've had a series of big steps over the years, but our elders have consulted several of the top financial experts in this field from around the country to ensure that this is a wise investment. In other words, that it does not straddle us with debt in a way that restricts our ministry ability, which is the core of our calling, or, or the, in a way that would keep us from giving money away to missions, or that, that would keep us from saving money in order to plant new campuses and respond to new opportunities. They have counseled us that this is a wise and very important step in our growth and one that is going to enable us to do more of all of those things. I am so thankful for their diligent work and for the difficult questions that have been asked and for the counsel that they have given us in this. This recommendation really comes down to two questions. The first question is, do we currently have the seating capacity to keep reaching people? And the answer to that is no. Some of our campuses do not have that capacity any longer. And we have to do something about that because that is our mission. And for us to not do something about would be an abrogation of our mission and unfaithful to the Savior who called us to follow him to seek and save the lost. The second question we have to answer is, do we have the financial capacity to do this? And the answer to that question is yes, because of God's faithfulness through your generosity, we do have that capacity. You say, well, I thought we at the Summit Church were all about sending people. We are. But in order to send them, we got to reach them first. And this step is going to enable us to do that. So I'm asking you, this is going to be next week, I'm asking you as your pastor to vote to affirm this measure so that we can get about the task of reaching our community as God has called us to reach and promised that he would do through us. Okay? That's coming next week. Just wanted to give you a little heads up on it. All right. All right. Here we are at last. Open your Bibles to the book of... Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. I've been waiting for 15 years to say that phrase. I've been pastor here for 15 years, and I've never preached to the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, I have never preached a single message in 15 years from the book of Ecclesiastes. Why, you ask? Why have you avoided Ecclesiastes? Here is why. Because it has verses in it like these. For the fate of the children of Adam and animals is the same. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Can anybody really prove that the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of animals goes downward into dust? In other words, 
Animals and humans may live very different lives, but they're exactly alike in death. Say you have living, you know, laying side by side the dead body of Albert Einstein and a cat. In life, one could play Mozart and figure out quantum physics. The other played with a yarn ball and fantasized about ripping innocent children's faces off. But in death now, they're both the same. They're just decomposing corpses. Or, or how about this one, Ecclesiastes 9 too. Everything ends the same for everyone. The same fate awaits the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. That's not the normal, typical message that I preach in church, is it? Plus, there's some really strange advice in Ecclesiastes, like Ecclesiastes 7.16. Do not be overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you wear yourself out? I mean, what am I supposed to do with that? Like, don't get into this God thing too much, all right? Just back it off there, super Christian, you know. Or just odd, random advice in the book, like Ecclesiastes 9.8. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Now, granted, I know some single guys who really need to hear that, but is that really important enough to include in the Bible? Or Ecclesiastes 4.11, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Commentators are clear, this is not about sex. It is a metaphorical picture about the value of friendship. If it is cold outside and you're traveling, if you're traveling with a friend instead of by yourself, then you got somebody to spoon with at night. I have prayed that Jesus would never make me apply this verse ever in my life. And then there are verses you just don't know what to do with, like Ecclesiastes 10, 19, wine makes life happy and money is the answer for everything. <laughs> I mean, you see what I'm, I'm getting at? And then some really politically incorrect verses like this one, Ecclesiastes 7, 28, I found one upright man among a thousand, out of a thousand men, I only found one that was worth anything. Not one upright woman among them all. Hey, y'all know a little secret? Uh, sometimes, occasionally when I go places, they'll ask me to do a book signing. And whenever you do a book signing, they always want you to put a verse that means a lot to you, just the reference of it. This is one of the verse references that I put, um, just to really mess them up later for when they look it up and they're like, what is going on with that? Um, <laughs> there are verses in it where you're just not quite sure what point is being made, like Ecclesiastes 11.3, the tree falls to the south or to the north, and the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Right, thank you, Captain Obvious. Uh, you could have at least told me whether or not it makes a sound, then I would have understood why you put it in there. But yeah, I ask, what am I supposed to do with all of that? Y'all see how hard my job is? Honestly, you see that? You're going to find out that Ecclesiastes is one of the most confusing yet clarifying books in all of the Bible. This book, let me give you a little warning. This book is really going to rattle some of you because it is going to shatter this neat and tidy view of the world that you have. Others of you are going to feel like this book really helps things make much more sense. And I include in that a bunch of you who have heard hundreds of sermons in churches like this one. You're going to get into this book and it's going to say some things and you're going to be like, at last, somebody is finally being honest. And at last, I get it. Now, I know that's a very tall order that I just gave you, and we've only got two weeks, so let's get started. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1 opens like this. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? Now, there are three questions I want to ask just about these first three verses here to begin with. The first question is, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? And you read that verse and you say, well, duh, Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. He was the king in Jerusalem. Furthermore, you're going to find out in Ecclesiastes that this teacher obtained everything that he ever wanted in life, wisdom, women, riches, and power. But apart from God, they still left him empty. And that is Solomon's life in a nutshell. 
So obviously you say, it's got to be Solomon. However, there are clearly two voices that speak throughout this book. One is the voice of this teacher who talks about the sense of futility he had with his accomplishments. The other voice is the voice of an editor who is going to make periodic comments on what the teacher says in this book, sometimes affirming what he says and sometimes correcting. Now, is it possible that Solomon is both voices? As in Solomon is giving to us his perspective through the teacher as a man who forsook God in his final years, chasing pleasure and power, but then he corrects himself because he came back to God in his final, final hours, like maybe this is a a deathbed type of book. Maybe. I think that honestly is the most natural reading of the book. However, 1 Kings, which contains the full story of Solomon's life that we just got done studying a couple weeks ago, 1 Kings never says that Solomon repented in his final days, and that seems like something the writer would have included had it happened. So the other option is that a later editor took some of Solomon's final musings, put them down in a book, and then offered his divinely inspired interpretation of them. So in that scenario, you have two different people writing this book, Solomon, who in his later years lived like a fool, and then this editor who compiled his writings and corrected him. So which is it? You ready for this? I haven't the foggiest idea. The good news is that neither approach changes how you interpret Ecclesiastes. The essential thing to remember is that there are indeed two voices that are speaking throughout the book because only then will you be able to interpret this book correctly and to make sense of some of the madness therein. The second thing to notice in this opening kind of verse here is a word that he introduces that he is going to repeat throughout the book. The word is translated in English, futility. He's going to repeat that 38 different times throughout the book. Absolute futility. Now, it is futility in the translation that I'm using, but scholars say it's a really tough word to translate from Hebrew. The Hebrew word is hevel, hevel, and it literally means vapor or smoke. Sometimes in English it gets translated as meaningless or emptiness, or if you grew up in the King James Version the way that I did, vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And scholars say it means a little bit of all of those words, but it's not fully captured in any of them. Probably, they say, the best way to grasp the meaning is to consider the word picture itself. Hevel, smoke or vapor, like a cloud. You know how when you were a kid, the clouds looked like this big, gigantic, comfy pillow that you could just lounge around in and bounce around in, and wouldn't it be fun to play in a cloud? I can remember as a kid, the first airplane ride I took, when we passed through that first cloud, how disappointed I was to see that it looked so big and awesome from the outside, but you pass through it like it's not even there. If you were falling, even the fullest, thickest looking cloud, it's just nothing. It's just heaven. I mean, how many of you have skydived before? Raise your hand. This is like, skydiving is one of the three things in my life that is not disappointed. Um, uh, Getting saved, getting married to Veronica, and skydiving. Those are the only three things. Everything else has not lived up to expectations. Um, When when I, uh, it's like the best part of skydiving is you hit one of these clouds, and it looks so like thick and fluffy, and you just blaze right through it like it's not even there. It looks so solid and substantive from the outside, but it isn't. It's full of nothing. It is hevel. That's what life is like, Solomon says. It looks one way from the outside, but when you really press into it, you're going to find out that it's full of nothing. It's empty. One scholar says the best translation is absurd. Life has a quality to it that doesn't make sense. Even when, listen, you're walking with God. 
there are parts of your life that just are not going to make sense. They seem absurd. This book comes right after the book of Proverbs in your Bible, which is intentional. They're both part of what we call the wisdom literature of the Bible. Proverbs often reads like a book of guarantees. If you do this, then this over here will happen. For example, Proverbs 3.10, honor the Lord with your first fruits, work hard, be honest, and God will bless you with wealth and honor and riches. Proverbs 6.6, 6, work hard like the ant, save money like the beaver, and you'll have lifelong riches that you'll be able to leave to your children and your children's children. Proverbs 22.6, raise up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And those are great pieces of wisdom. And following that wisdom will often lead you to success and to honor and to good kids and even riches, much more so than if you don't follow that wisdom. But here is the thing, that counsel is not foolproof. It is not designed to be. The book is called Proverbs, Not Promises. And Proverbs is more about general wisdom and principles. Again, it is wise to live by them, and you'll be much better off living by them than if you don't. But many of us, right, many of us have had the experience of doing exactly what Proverbs said about a situation and having the opposite thing to what Proverbs said would happen, happen. You worked hard like the ant, and you saved, and you tithed, and you honored God with all your first fruits, and then the stock market crashed, and you lost your retirement. You led your business with integrity, putting others first, and you went out of business. You pursued marriage God's way, and your spouse cheated on you and left you. You did your dead level best to raise up your child in the way that they should go, but when they were old, they did depart from it. Haven't you had the experience of doing something the right way, the Proverbs way, and then everything falling apart? I had a lot of bad jobs when I was in college. But the worst one that I ever had was one that was uh, gotten for me by uh, a guy named Bruce Ashford, who was one of our elders here now. Uh, when we were in college together over Christmas break, he got a job um, for me with him, essentially pimping credit cards outside of one of the big department stores in Crabtree Valley Mall. You get people to sign up for a credit card, you give them a, a free gift. Yes, I was that guy. <laughs> Just so we're all clear there. Uh, I was that guy, and it won't surprise some of you, but I was actually kind of good at it. And by the end of that first week, um, uh, Bruce and I were, were leading the whole team in terms of sales. And so our boss pulled us in. He gave us a little bonus that you guys are doing a great job. He said, now, here's the thing. There's a little place here on the forum where they can sign up for this insurance that basically charges them a monthly fee. Um, he said, that's really where we make our commission. It's where you're going to make a lot of money. He said, but the thing is, if you explain it to them what it is, they're not going to sign up for it. So just tell them when they're signing up for the credit card that they need to initial here, here, and here, and they'll approve the insurance thing. And Bruce and I were like, well, I just don't, I just don't really feel right about that. He said, you just got to do that. Um, so, and we, we tried it our way, the Daniel way, you know, like we're like, we're just going to be honest. And so I would try to explain real quickly what it was and see if they wanted it. And they, uh, uh, you know, they would try. So at the end of the week, we were still leading everybody in sales, but we didn't have hardly any of these insurance things filed up. So he didn't give us a bonus that week and said, I need you guys to start pushing this insurance thing. Two days later of the third week, he called us both in the office at the end of the day, still number one in the sales chart and says, you guys don't need to come back into work tomorrow, you're done. So I got essentially fired from that job. And I know what Proverbs says. And I'm like, uh, I honored God with my first, I did all this the right way. I was with integrity. His supervisor was supposed to discover all this, kind of exalt me, promote me. He's supposed to get fired. I'm supposed to be the one that, that is blessed because I did it God's way. But that didn't happen. 
Now, that's a very small example, but life is full of those, isn't it? Where life just doesn't feel fair. In chapter 9, Solomon's going to tell us the story of a poor man who, through his wisdom, figures out a plot against the city. He acts heroically and saves the city, but then the rich people in the city, oh, they figured out a way to manipulate the system and steal the credit for themselves. They got honored, and his role, the poor man's role in this whole thing gets ignored. Haven't many of you had the exact same experience? Somebody else at work gets the credit for a job because they knew how to play office politics better than you did? You got passed over for a promotion you deserved or even got robbed of justice because you were the wrong color or the wrong gender or because you wouldn't sleep with the boss? Sometimes life feels absurd. It's hevel. That's what the writer is saying. He's saying, yes, wisdom is good, but it's like he's found a glitch in the system. He's not saying that life is meaningless. It's just problematic. It's unsolid, like a cloud, sometimes absurd. It's hevel. Which leads me to the final phrase to notice in this opening verse, and that is the phrase, under the sun. He's going to repeat that phrase 29 times throughout the book. The teacher indicates that his perspective only takes into view how things look under the sun. What is over the sun? Heaven is over the sun. Solomon deliberately leaves out heaven's perspective or how the reality of God, his plan and his presence and his promises change everything. And that's what the editor, the other voice, brings in. Throughout the book, he's going to remind you that there is more to life than what you see under the sun. Ecclesiastes describes for you what life looks like under the sun after the fall of man. Scholars point out that his repeated use of the word futility and toil throughout the book hearken back to Genesis 3 where God had cursed man after he sinned to live on the earth under the sun in futility and toil. Solomon in Ecclesiastes is unpacking for you what that feels like. Again, this book is going to help some of you so, so much. It's going to show you how to trust in God when it's all gone to heaven. For some of you, however, this book is really going to rattle you, like I said, because you've got this really neat and tidy view of God that if you do A, good thing, then God is going to automatically do B, this blessing thing. And so long as you are a good person and you do what's right, God's going to make everything smooth sailing in the end. That perspective is going to get shattered in this book. And while uncomfortable for you, this is going to be a really good thing for some of you because at some point, the hevel of life is going to smash you in the face. Or like the ancient rabbis used to say, the hevel's really going to hit the fan. And if you're not ready for that, you're going to be mad at God and you're going to be like, but God, I did it. I thought you were supposed to. And God, why didn't you do this? I did this over here. And God, do you even exist? I hate you. I hate you. So the first thing we got to look at, get our minds around, are the three primary ways that Solomon experienced life as heaven. There are three of them. Here, here's number one. First, he says, is the absurdity of pursuing pleasure and power. The absurdity of pursuing pleasure and power. I said in my heart, chapter two, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Treat yourself. That's what I said to my heart. I explore with my mind the pool of wine on my body, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. In other words, Solomon is like the sophomore who wakes up from a hangover with a missing tooth and a facial tattoo, and he has no idea how it got there. But then he finds a detailed notebook that he kept while in his drunken state. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from then. I kept my heart from no pleasure. Do you all remember all that Solomon had? 
Everything in the man's house was made out of gold. He was multi-talented, well-read. His kingdom was at peace and his power was unchallenged. He ate great food and had a thousand different sexual options every night. In addition to all of this, he wrote New York Times best-selling books on every subject. He was one of the most popular songwriters of his day. He built the most impressive temple the world had ever seen. And he led Israel in a national spiritual revival. That's not a bad list of life accomplishments. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it. Behold, it was all hevel. It was useless. It was like striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Three ways that Solomon says the pursuit of worldly pleasure and security are absurd. First of all, he says they are, if you take a note, letter A, they're unfulfilling. He said, you know, I thought I would feel complete when I had an excess of pleasure and power, but I didn't. Here's the thing, listen. Multiple, listen, multiple times throughout this book, Solomon is going to say correctly, money is good, love and sex are good, health is good. These are gifts of God to enjoy. But if they become the primary place that you seek happiness, you will find them empty. You will find them hevel. I read a stat, for example, recently that showed that people who have their basic needs met financially and have a little bit of money in savings are indeed happier than those who live below the poverty line. The study showed, however, that after your basic needs are met and after you have a small amount of savings, I think the number that they used was a combined household income of $75,000 a year. After that, there is literally no correlation between increased net worth and happiness. In fact, it actually reverses. And you start to become less happy the more you make. We also know that suicide rates and depression are highest among the rich, proving that increases in money doesn't lead to increased happiness. That's exactly what Solomon is saying. It is good to have your needs met. Money and family are good. But if they are your primary source of life, they're going to leave you empty. You see, here's the truth that most people don't understand that the editor of Ecclesiastes explains, right? Here's the truth. There are two different gifts that God gives. One is money and, and, and marriage and family. The other is the ability to enjoy those things. And those are two different gifts. And they have to be sought in two different ways. Ecclesiastes 6.1. Here's a tragedy I've observed under the sun. It weighs heavily on humanity. God gives of one person riches, wealth, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all he desires for himself. But God doesn't give the second gift to that person. He doesn't give them the ability to enjoy them for a happy life, see, you need to not only have money and family and love, you need the ability to enjoy the things God gives you. And that is a separate gift of God that you got to seek in a different way. I was reminded here of what the, the great theologian Drake said in an interview. He said there was a point where I felt like I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in those moments after sex, I'd know it wasn't working. These quiet moments are the realest moments a man will ever have in his life. The next day I'd convinced myself to do it again, but during that time I knew it was not working. That's the same thing the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. Pleasure and power is sought as the primary source of happiness or unfulfilling by themselves. And so he says they're, they're absurd. They're also absurd because they are, letter B, they're fleeting. Fleeting for a number of reasons. First of all, when you die, you're dead. Nothing you've accomplished benefits you anymore. Here's how Solomon rather starkly and aptly says that. As a man came from his mother's womb, so will he go again. Naked he came out, naked he goes away. He'll take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hands. 
This too is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so will he go. In other words, you came into the world naked. You do a lot of stuff in between your last time of nakedness, which is when you die. And in between that, all the ways that you live that were different don't really benefit you that much in terms of how you leave because you go out just like you came in at the same level. Jerry Seinfeld, who became famous for making a show about the absurdity or the hevel of life, he says it's even beyond just death. He says it even is in your last few years of life. He says your last birthday and your first birthday are very similar. You just kind of sit there. You're the least excited person at the party. You don't even realize that there is a party. At both your first and last birthdays, other people help you blow out the candles. You can't do it. You don't even know why you're doing it. You're like, what is this ritual? What is going on? At your first birthday and your last birthday, other people have to gather your friends together for you. Sometimes they're not even your friends. They decide. They bring them in. They sit them down. And they tell you, these are your friends. Tell them thank you for coming to my birthday. In other words, you go out just like you came in. No matter what you accomplish in death, usually even in old age, you can't really enjoy it. I've told you before, Steve Jobs really struggled with this. In the last page of Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, he talks about how Jobs, just one of his last interviews, admitted he said, I've never wanted to put an on-off switch on an Apple device because I can't stand the thought that one day I'm just going to get turned off. And at that point, all that I've accomplished and all that I've built and all these things are not going to benefit me at all. In light of that, Solomon asked, what does the one really gain who struggles for the win? What's more, he eats in darkness all his days with much frustration, sickness, and anger. You know what that means? He eats in darkness. It means he's the one that works late. Everybody else is home playing. He's in the working late he's got to get ahead. He eats in darkness means he's eating all by himself alone. And then you die and you can't take any of it with you, so you leave it to a trust fund kid who doesn't appreciate it, and they just waste it. You say, oh, but they'll always remember how awesome I, I, I was. Not really. Like I told you a few weeks ago, after your funeral, they gather up all your prized possessions, and then they say, what are we going to do with all this junk? Like Joby said a few weeks ago, they hold up your clothes, and they make fun of them. Like, look at the pants mama used to wear. Aren't these ridiculous? Mark Twain, the world laments you for an hour, and then it forgets you forever. And even if they do say some nice things about you, you can't hear them because you're dead. So be, be encouraged. Um, so, <laughs> furthermore, Solomon says, what we do doesn't even make that big of an impact. It might, might be when he's at his darkest here. Ecclesiastes 1.4, generations come and generations go. But the earth remains forever. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea's never really full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome and they're heavy. In other words, we don't even leave that big of an impact. You know, I've had this very thought at the ocean before. So when I read it a few weeks ago in Ecclesiastes, I thought, I've actually thought that sometimes when I'm at the ocean, I, I just find myself wondering like, how much change has this ocean actually seen in humanity? Think about the different technology, the different kind of ships that have sailed on it, the different styles of people who go to the beach. Yet year after year, all these things changes, and the tide just keeps doing the exact same thing. It's like it comes in every night. It's like, oh, you guys are still here? All right. You know, you guys are, it's just we make that, we don't make any difference. Our accomplishments amount to little. I thought of this this week. Um, when I was young at church, we used a thing called, called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible. You might remember that? It's a big old thick book where literally every word of the Bible had been cataloged so you could look up a word that you remembered and find out all the verses it was used in. It was really useful. Um, the guy Strong, who put that together, literally spent 60 years, his whole life, putting together that one thing. 
Here's what's depressing. Any seventh grader in America could now do that same thing in 10 minutes with about six different keystrokes on a computer. And what Solomon says is one day, all that we accomplish is really going to feel like that. And our work is so fragile. It could get wiped out at any minute by an earthquake or a tsunami. You know, um, uh, do you ever watch, you know, like when you like knock over an anthill, not that you do it on purpose, but accidentally knock over an anthill. You just watch the ants. You know, what do they do? You, you, you know, they just start putting it all back together, right? And you, it's like you'd expect some kind of reaction, like them to be like, come on! Spend all this time putting this thing together, you just kick it over, like, you know, what's wrong? But they don't, they don't complain, they just go back, put it back together. And it's kind of ridiculous because you know that tomorrow you can come along and just do it again. And Solomon says that's really what we're like. We're all just kind of busy with activity, all this activity. One solar flare, though, and we're toast. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> Aren't you? <laughs> Let's pray. No, 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 I'm kidding. We're not done. Here's one more thing that makes the pursuit of pleasure and power absurd. He says that life is, let her see, unpredictable. Unpredictable. Solomon's going to spend a lot of time talking about how blind chance plays a huge role in our lives. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 11, again, I saw unto the sun that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, it's time and chance that happen to all of them. In other words, two people that make the exact same life decisions. One ends up a billionaire, the other ends up dirt poor. Not even righteous living guarantees success. Chapter 7, in my feudal life, I've seen everything. Somebody righteously perishes in spite of his righteousness. And somebody wicked lives long in spite of his evil. Which leads us to the second absurdity Solomon notes. He says, number two, there's the absurdity of pursuing wisdom. I said to myself, chapter one, my mind is thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. What? This is the guy who wrote Proverbs. And he's telling me that pursuing wisdom is absurd? Yes, he says pursuing wisdom at one level is absurd for a few reasons. First of all, living righteously does not guarantee smooth sailing. Chapter 10, he tells us, this interesting, follow me with this. The one who digs a pit may fall into it, and the one who breaks the wall may be bitten by a snake. Those are both quotes from the book of Proverbs that Solomon wrote. And in those Proverbs, he says, basically, that the ones who do evil will often have that evil brought back on them. So if you dig a pit for somebody else to fall into, you're the one that's probably going to fall in the pit. All right, so this is about how evil people suffer for their evil. Next verse, verse 9. The one who quarries stones may be hurt by them. The one who splits logs may be in danger by them. These are people who work honestly. They work with integrity. They do the right thing, and they still get hurt. Sometimes evil comes back like Proverbs says it is, and sometimes people work honestly, and the same thing happens to them, and you just look at things, and you say, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Second, he says, you can never really figure out the ways of God. Ecclesiastes 3.11, nobody can discover the work that God has done from beginning to end. Some of God's work you might be able to grasp, but a lot of it you'll never be able to understand. And the fact that you can understand some of it just frustrates you. Because you're like, well, I understand what God is doing here, but why is this happening over here? Why is this hevel happening all over here? I, I, I see what he's doing here, but this makes no sense. Y'all, and if you're like me, you often find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place. The rock is you can't become an atheist. There's just too much evidence for God to become an atheist. But how can you believe in a good God who controls everything when all this crazy hevel over here keeps happening? 
Thirdly, he says, it's futile to seek wisdom because the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. Ecclesiastes 12, 12, be warned. There's no end to the making of many books. And much study wearies the body. And every student said, amen. For everything you learn, you realize there's more you don't know. I think I realized this when I read books on parenting. Every book I read on parenting leaves me feeling less competent as a parent. Can I get an amen from other parents out there? The most competent I have ever felt as a parent was before I had kids. I was actually pastor here. I used to preach sermons here on parenting, had no kids. I'd read four good books on parenting. I had four great sermons on parenting, no kids. Now I have four kids, no great sermons on parenting. And when I do preach a sermon to you on parenting, I probably sound a lot more confident than I am. I'm like, uh, you know, in my back of my mind, I'm thinking, mm, I think this is right. Why don't you try it and tell me if it works, right? <laughs> Solomon says, trying to gain wisdom as a way of mastering life is foolish. You try to learn everything there is to know about parenting, and you still look at your kid and say, I don't know what the hell is going on with him. You just, it's, it, it's, it's absurd. I, I can't master everything through knowledge. He's, finally, Solomon points us to Number three, the absurdity of worldly justice. Chapter eight, there's something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is hevel. I think we all right now tend to get pretty discouraged because we look around and we see so many places. Sometimes it's in our personal life. Sometimes it's in society at large where justice does not seem to be prevailing. The powerful are not held to account. Somebody gets wrongly blamed. Somebody gets smeared in public opinion who don't deserve it. The true story, the real history, the real motives never get told. And if you are insistent on every just cause being settled under the sun, you're going to lose your mind. It's not that we should quit fighting for justice, just that Solomon recognizes that to some level, full justice is impossible to attain under the sun. And sometimes you're going to look around and you're going to see that wicked are getting what righteous deserve and righteous are getting what wicked deserve. And you're going to say it all feels like hell. And you're like, this is the worst sermon I have ever heard in my life. That's exactly. It's Solomon's sermon. Don't blame me. I'm just reading what he said. That's his sermon in Ecclesiastes. Like, well, what am I supposed to do with all this? That's what we'll get into next week. So I hope you'll come back. Um, but I knew I couldn't leave you there. I knew. What, so let me give you just sort of a little preview, a little appetizer, okay? Um, Solomon is going to give you three conclusions, or the writer is going to give you three conclusions. I'm going to give you, I'm giving them to you now. We'll expand a lot more on them next week. Um, but I'll just give you like a three or four minute, you know, whatever of, of each of them. Number one, he says, the conclusion, fear God. Last verses of the book, watch this. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here at the very end of Ecclesiastes, the editor takes us back over the sun. And over the sun, he said, you will find that there is indeed a God who will bring ultimate justice and with whom we will live and enjoy perfect happiness for eternity, who will reward every good deed and punish every evil one. We may not be able to tell just by reflection of what's going on under the sun if there's any value to living righteously. We may not even be able to tell if human life has more value than animal life, but Ecclesiastes is not the only book in the Bible. The Bible is God's message from over the sun, from heaven to earth. 
There's a very famous statue, I'm sure you've, you've seen some version of it, Rodin's Thinker, where he's sitting around, you know, thinking and pondering about life and looking for answers within. That is not the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is written by the teacher, Koheleth in Hebrew. He is telling us about things we cannot find by looking within, things that we have to be told from above. And what God declares to us through his word is, you will die. And after that, you will face judgment. And if you are wise, you will live in a way where you are prepared to give an account when you go over the sun. And it is true that no one can comprehend all of God's work under the sun. But just because you can't see meaning under the sun doesn't mean that there isn't any meaning. Ecclesiastes' purpose in showing you the absurdity of life is not to turn you into an atheist. Ecclesiastes' purpose is to turn you into a more humble theist. He's not writing this book to say life is absurd, there's probably no God. He's writing this book to say put up your neat and tidy formulas about how life is supposed to work and seek a God who is greater than the hevel and a God who is bigger than all this chaos. I told you that Ecclesiastes pairs with the book of Proverbs it also pairs with the other wisdom book in the Bible, which is, you know what it is? Starts with J, rhymes with Ob. Job. Job is your other wisdom book. And here in Job, we've got to read the three of these books together, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Um, here in Job, you've got a guy who literally did everything right, did everything the Proverbs way, and literally everything went wrong. And he has no idea why. Now, the irony is, you and I actually do know why. Because it starts with this heavenly backstory where Satan and his angels are in heaven. And they're saying to God, God, the only reason people serve you and worship you is because you give them all this stuff. And if you took the stuff away from them, they wouldn't worship you because you're not worthy to be worshipped in yourself. And God says, that's not true. I am worthy to be worshipped by myself without all the stuff. And Satan says, that's not true. And he says, let's have a test case. Job. What happens if you take everything from Job? Will he still worship you for who you are, even if he doesn't have all the riches and stuff that you gave him? And that's what happens for 38 chapters in the book of Job. Now, the irony is Job never knew that. Well, you and I know that. And see, that book is in the Bible with Ecclesiastes and Proverbs saying sometimes you're going to live with the wisdom of Proverbs and some things are going to happen and you're not going to know the meaning. But just because you can't see the meaning doesn't mean there is a meaning. There isn't a meaning. And that sometimes there's a God in heaven who is pursuing these purposes that you can't see right now and you're not going to see until you get over the sun. In its own strange way, the writer of Ecclesiastes points you forward to Jesus. You look around at life and you say, is there no point? Is there no justice? But then Jesus shows up in the New Testament and walks on water and says, I'm the judge of the earth and says, there is a point and there is justice and God has not forgotten you. You say, well, maybe we're just like the animals and our bodies are just going to rot one day like theirs do after we die. But Jesus' resurrection says, no, you mattered so much to me that I purchased your soul with my blood so that I could raise you up to eternal life with me so that in my presence you could experience the fullness of joy and at my right hand pleasures forevermore. We say, well, nothing I'm doing in life actually makes a difference. It's all hevel. And Paul says, no. Because of the resurrection, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because the resurrection shows you that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And so the writer says, go back over the sun and fear God. Number two, he's going to tell us, enjoy every moment of life that you can. Enjoy every moment of life that you can. In one sense, you've got to embrace the absurdity, the randomness, the constantly changing chaos of life, and just enjoy the moment. This is so important, y'all. It's going to be repeated, this whole idea, more than six times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to get into so much more on this next week. But you'll never be able to guarantee success, absolute security, or perfect justice in this life. You're going to have to wait to, for eternity for that. But in the meantime, 
In the meantime, God has created a good life with really good pleasures. Things like the beauties of nature and romance and food and friendship and good drink. So enjoy them when you can and enjoy them in the present and quit thinking about what you've lost in the past and quit trying to obtain for the future because the present is the place in which God gives joy. Some of you are so bothered by injustices or you're so consumed with the pursuit of more that you just can't enjoy the present and that's the only place you can find joy. This happened to me this week. I was so consumed one afternoon by just the injustice of something that was happening and just so convinced that this was never going to work out and I was never going to be exonerated and it was just and I was just so consumed with it that I spent the entire afternoon with my family and did not enjoy a single second of it and I got to the end of it and I thought I'm so consumed with this thought that I didn't enjoy some of the best moments of my children's lives I can leave God with the future, and I can know that one day he's going to take care of that, and I can enjoy these moments I have with my family. I can enjoy this right now because in the present, in the absurdity of life, is where God gives you the ability to enjoy things. So Solomon says, this is good for a man. This is good for a man. Eat well. Drink a good glass of wine. Accept your position in life. Enjoy your work, whatever your job may be, or however however long the Lord may let you live. Live to the hilt every moment you've been given by God. I tell you what's interesting, I'll point this out again next week. Friendship is never spoken negatively of in Ecclesiastes, not one time. In other words, have good friends, enjoy your food, relish time with your wife and your kids if you have them, try to find some enjoyment in your work, live to the hilt every moment in front of you, and stop romanticizing the past and stop yearning for the future. Enjoy today, because today is the place that God gives joy and present, and he just wants you to enjoy it. Number three, number three. Yes, I'm enjoying right now as well. Thank you for that. Number three, seek a God that is greater than the hevel. Seek a God that is greater than the hevel. Ecclesiastes 2.24, a person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and enjoy their work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. Because without him, who can eat and who can find enjoyment? Joy is a gift that God gives. It doesn't come automatically with riches or relationships. You say, well, who gets the gift? How do you get the gift? Oh, great question. Verse 26, for the person who's pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. Okay, well, how do you become pleasing in his sight? Oh, see, that's the really good news. The good news is that if you're a believer in Jesus, you were pleasing in his sight because the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth and he lived a life that was pleasing to God, the life that you were supposed to live. And then Jesus died on a cross suffering for all the things that you had done that displeased God and he put them away forever. So that when you receive him, his perfect pleasing life becomes yours and you are pleasing to God because you are now in Christ. You could almost think of it this way. Jesus lived the perfect Proverbs life and then he died the Ecclesiastes death. He entered into our Genesis 3 hevel and he lived under the futility and under the curse and he absorbed the curse and died for it so that I could now have the promises of a relationship with God who can say all things are gonna work together for good in your life because I know you and I've got a purpose and I'm working all things according to the counsel of my will and I will never leave you or forsake you and surely goodness and mercy are gonna follow you all the days of your life because Jesus absorbed the unpleasing things. You're pleasing to me and I'll give you that gift if you ask for it. God has not given us an airtight philosophy of wisdom. He has not given us ironclad guarantees through the book of Proverbs. What he has given us is an airtight person to walk with. 
and in whom we can hide during the vicissitudes of life. Jesus, the wisdom of God, who is our guarantee of our future inheritance. Jesus, who never changes, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, Ecclesiastes, in its own strange way, points you forward to Jesus. It leaves you yearning for Jesus. Our friend Joby Martin, who was here a few weeks ago, you might remember, says that, uh, he says, you know, in light of the book of Ecclesiastes, here's how you ought to see the coming of Jesus. And I, I can't improve on his words, so I'm just going to share his story. But he, he says, you got to go back to the anthill. He says this, he says, the vacant lot next to the place where I lived in college was full of carpenter ants. So when I would leave for class, the neighbor's kid would be on his big wheel. You, you remember big wheels? Had a wheel about this high which meant that cars, too low for cars to see, but the wheel was so high that the kid could not see over the wheel. Perfect recipe for death, okay? And he said, and, and, and he said so what this kid would do is he would go to the vacant lot beside my lot and he would spread jelly all over the place. He says that some of the ants would discover the jelly and they'd get excited and they'd go tell their ant friends in whatever ant communication ways that they communicate, put on ant Facebook or whatever, hey, jelly at Joby's place. And uh, he's, you know, come get the jelly. And he says the kid would wait until all the ants got there and then he would power slide through the lot with his big wheel and kill all the ants. Joby said, now, if I loved ants and I wanted to communicate with them, it'd be impossible to try to stand over them and say, hear ye, hear ye, all ye ants. Thou shalt not eat the jelly because it will lead to thy death. They would just look at me and say, look at the size of that guy's boot. But if I were just an ant, I wouldn't have the perspective to understand that psycho big wheel kid is on his way with jelly and death. So I would need to simultaneously be big and powerful enough to have the right perspective and be able to see the future and yet small enough as an ant to be able to communicate with them, to grow up like an ant, to speak ant language, and yet still have the perspective of being so big. And then one day, at just the right time, I would go into the ant colony and I would say, behold, ants, follow me. I know the jelly tastes good, but look around. See all the ant legs and the squished body parts? That's gonna be you one day. Follow me across the street where there's no psycho big wheel kid because his mom won't let him cross the street. And then he says, that's what the coming of Jesus was like. Sort of, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> The call of Ecclesiastes is to give up control of your life to one you may not be able to understand, but whom you can trust. A Jesus that is bigger than the hevel and a Jesus that took in the hevel for you so that you could have the assurances of a God who will never leave you or forsake you. So there's two things I want you to do with this. Number one, I want you to make sure that you're right with Jesus because ultimately it all points to that. The absurdity of life points to the fact that you need somebody larger than the absurdity of life. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to come back next week so that you can get into some of the more practical instructions of what he has to say for us. Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses, bow your heads with me. If you're not right with Jesus and you'd like to be, you can do it through a very simple prayer that sounds like this. Listen, let me explain this. The way to get right with God is nothing that you do. The gospel is that Jesus has done everything necessary to get you right with God dying for your sin and he offers it to you as a gift. The only way to get right with God is to receive that gift as your own and just surrender to him. If you've never done that, you can do it right now. You can say, Jesus, I'm coming home. I'm returning to you. I receive you as Savior. I surrender to you as Lord. If that's you at one of our campuses right now, you just trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, then before you leave today, I want you to tell somebody. We'll have pastors down front at every campus. You can tell one of them or you can just tell the person that brought you and say, 
doing this. I'm, I'm coming home with Jesus. I'm starting this relationship with Jesus. Father, I pray, God, that we would be a church, not just of wisdom, but a church of faith in Jesus. And I pray that where life feels absurd, we would find peace that passes all understanding through our knowledge of our relationship with him. We pray in Christ's name.